Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jason Cherry, author of Pittsburgh's Lost Outpost. Jason Cherry, author of Pittsburgh's Lost Outpost, Captain Trent's Fort. What is this fort you're writing about? This fort is something, uh, you know, that's definitely somewhat overlooked when we, when we think about the city of Pittsburgh. Um, it was basically an outpost um, originally thought of by the governor then of uh, Virginia at the time, uh, Robert Dinwiddie, and basically had assigned William Trent, a pretty prominent Indian trader at the time, to hopefully build an outpost and eventually, you know, pledge allegiance to the, you know, the native tribes and everything, and eventually become a, not only Virginia fort, but also um, the land speculating company, the Ohio Company, and also um, hopefully start a big chain of forts eventually for not only for Virginia, but also Great Britain. Um, it was something that uh, William Trent basically was assigned to do, along with somebody that was sort of, you know, making a stake in a claim in history, uh, George Washington. Now, we're recording this in, in Pittsburgh, not too far from the forks of the Ohio. What, did, what, what was Virginia's business out here then? Virginia's business, and it was pretty a touchy subject because um, when it came down to it, the governor of Virginia at the time, Robert Dinwiddie, was also a big prominent member of a land speculating company called the Ohio Company. The Ohio Company at the time was a, a land speculation company. It was one of the biggest probably at the time in the world. Um, it was actually began by Augustine and Lawrence Washington, who were actually the older half-brothers of George Washington. And it was a, basically a bunch of Virginia landholders that thought to lay claim to the land of not only western Pennsylvania, but also where we know today is present-day West Virginia, also the state of Virginia. Um, at the time, they were employees, former employees of a guy named Lord Thomas Fairfax, who in fact owned six million acres at the time of what was considered Virginia. And, you know, back then in the 17, early, actually late 1740s, uh, Virginia was basically, like I said, part of not only western Pennsylvania up to almost where Pittsburgh is, where we are today, but also West Virginia and also um, the state of Virginia. So it was a vast thing back then because Pennsylvania at the time was only considering the, uh, the three counties that existed at the time closer to Philadelphia. Um, at this point, you know, Virginia's big thing was is sort of make their claim on the 13 colonies by taking over this vast land of, of the area, especially, you know, what they considered claims through the Ohio Company. And by doing so, Dinwiddie basically, um, being a prominent member of the Ohio Company, used this as his agenda as, as well to not only extend for Virginia, but also for this land company that he was a most prominent member for. Now, what is the time frame we're talking about? The Ohio Company was formed in 1747, and they were able to get an appeal, hopefully, from the king um, to get a whole bunch of land. At one time, they were actually granted 200,000 acres um, with, with the promise of if they could get settlers to arrive at this area and, and everything, they could also add another additional 300,000, so almost a half a million acres when it came down to it. And then eventually, as this sort of went by, um, this is where they, the Ohio Company ended up hiring people out like traders and employees to hopefully you know, survey the lands. George Washington was one of these in 1748. Um, 
And also, William Trent was also one of these, you know, somebody that eventually about seven years later would have a, you know, even more, you know, prominent role as the, as the French Indian War became sort of a, uh, a stronghold or eventually became something that eventually would the world would take notice of. So, so the Ohio Company were land developers? Yeah, they were, like I said, they were a group of basically the, the wealthiest landholders in all of Virginia. And basically, they, some of the members were even just, just from England. Some of them aren't even in Virginia, but more so had you know, acreage in Virginia. And like I said, where present-day West Virginia was and, and eventually wanted to lay claim even north of that. Because at the time, um, where Cumberland, Maryland is today, around that vicinity, um, basically they called it the inhabitants at the mouth of what we know today as the mouth of Wills Creek um, in the Potomac. And above that was considered frontier, and it, it was sort of up for grabs. Uh, Pennsylvania wanted to lay claim to it. Virginia wanted to lay claim to it. Even the French wanted to lay claim to it down south from Canada. And then, in addition, you add the Indians who were already there, uh, you know, as presently living on it at the time and sort of uh, sort of torn between what side should they choose if both these, if England and France decide uh, to actually join into this claim. Was there some sort of official government relationship between the Ohio Company and the England or the government or government of Virginia? Yeah, a lot of the, uh, like I said, a lot of the wealthy owners, especially in England, basically had some, a lot of, you know, I guess you could say um, uh, sort of kind of dowry in, in such for the Ohio Company. Um, this was, like I said, it had not necessarily directly with the king, but more of the um, a lot of the owners basically over there were either, you know, some of them were had some kind of role with parliament over there or, like I said, you know, went the whole way to almost the colonies where you had the Virginia governor and you had maybe several others that were on the even the governor's council, you know, Virginia House of Burgesses that had some kind of shares um, in, in fact, in the Ohio Company. And as, as far as with that, that was, you know, pretty important when it came to especially with laying claim to the lands that, you know, then to show your wealth was basically to see how much land you owned. So the idea of expanding into Western Pennsylvania, what is now Western Pennsylvania, wasn't necessarily expansion of empire, but build a commercial Right, uh, and it was, concern? I think it didn't become really an expansion of the empire. I mean, as much as the king wanted to make sure that this was an expansion of the empire, um, it was more so, I think it became more so when the French started taking notice of this as well, and then it became sort of a global sort of, <laughs> Uh, you know, race for expansion to try to see who could claim what uh, at this time, especially in the you know late 1740s, almost early 1750s. Well, around that that era, uh, if you had wandered around here, how many people were here? What were they doing? Uh, like like I said, anything above like where where Cumberland, Maryland is, which is about at the time, according to you know numerous Indian paths and different things, it took about 130 miles to where we would know today, like where we're sitting today, to Cumberland, Maryland. Now, it's a little bit shorter today, but the way the, the vast Indian paths went through, maybe through the mountains there and eventually through the Chestnut Ridge and, you know, up north, it wasn't a, a straight about way. So as far as, you know, as far as doing that, it was laying claim to that especially was nothing above that was nobody really wanted to venture as far. So when George Washington and Christopher Gist, his guide, decided to eventually, you know, go north, the only people that had gone north at that time were either Indian traders or possibly you know, Indians themselves and also just possibly even French traders. Settlers pretty much didn't go above that, what they called the inhabitants, because it was pretty much the last outpost, um, at least on, the, on this side. Um, now, on the, like if you go eastern where Pennsylvania would be today, um, Shippensburg was pretty much the last part of uh, Edward Shippen, who, you know, ironically enough, was William Trent's um, person that he studied under as, as an apprentice. Edward Shippen ran a frontier depot to all the people, all the fur traders 
in the western, as you call the western part of the Ohio country. Um, and the last stoppage point was Shippensburg, is where his house lie and where also this frontier storehouse lay. So, in fact, it, anything west of that was considered frontier or the middle of the wilderness. And anything north of, like I said, present-day Cumberland, Maryland, was also that. So anything above that, there were a few settlers that tried to venture that, but they were without protection from, you know, maybe a... The local militia or possibly just some kind of outpost, it was it was rough to try to venture there. So if somebody lived out here and they wanted to be a trader, what would they be trading? Well, they a lot of the most of the thing was was basically furs. Furs was the big possession thing. You know, beaver was considered the wealthiest of the furs. Um, you know, there was numerous accounts has like, you know, they had and deer skin, and even specifically with the deer skin, they had, you know, buck skin, the male deer, and then the, you know, the doe skin as well. And you see beavers and fisher and, and all this stuff that was traded. And they also traded with supplies, depending on, mainly because the Indians, this is what they, type of stuff they wanted. They were all, you know, impressed with. Now, you know, granted, they could, the Indians could get a hold of this themselves, but they could also, you know, money to them really wasn't as far as actual money that we know today, but more so of, you know, what they could get in return, um, you know, with with guys like William Trent and George Crohan, it was, you know, traders like this and even Christopher Gist, this was a matter of the trade was basically as far as with wealth was, you know, the amount of furs and basically the, I guess, the allegiance to these to these Indians, because it meant everything, especially if you were traveling in an unknown area that you would have done trade with these, you know, say the numerous tribes that lived around the, you know, Pittsburgh or the Forks of the Ohio. If you were doing trade with them, that you know they would eventually would play a later role. Especially they would find out when Trent tried to build, because what ended up being that if you had trade with this already, they didn't feel like they were just taking the land from the Indians. They were, oh, we've traded with these guys before. We know for a fact that you know we, we can trust them. We've done numerous type of transactions with them. Who were the Indians around here? Well, mostly there was an Indian village about three miles north of Pittsburgh called Chinopin's Town at the time. They were mostly Delaware were in the area. There was also another one closer to McKee's Rocks, um, right at the mouth of Chartier's Creek, um, where it lies today, was also a Delaware village. Um, a lot of the Delawares were in the area now when they were able to, when, and when William Trent was able to sort of... Uh, call the other Indians in the area, which would, at he time, what he wrote in his account was the Indians of the Six Nations. And at that time, he was getting, not only that, he was getting, you know, he got numerous other Indian tribes like the Shawnee. He got, like I said, he had the Delaware. He had most of the Iroquois, you know, tribe. He had basically the Seneca and Mohawk and whoever else he could get, the Oneida. Um, numerous ones that he could get and sort of trust, you know, and even offer to them, not only from himself, but also from what Governor Dinwiddie's message was to that this fort that they would eventually would want to build an outpost would also be welcome to the Indians, especially the ones that lived in the area. So it didn't seem like they were trespassing. Uh, where were the French at the time? The French at the time, especially, uh, there were numerous French traders in what they called Logstown area. Logstown lied right on the Ohio River, about 18 miles here from Pittsburgh area. Um, Logstown was basically where Economy or, or Ambridge, PA is today. Um, there were some French traders there. I mean, mostly were from what they called the lower Ohio country, which was almost the state of Ohio that we know today, like Western Ohio. But also mostly they were coming down eventually across Lake Erie there um, at the start of basically Washington's journey there in, in the summer of eventually the fall of 1753. But by the summer, even before Washington left, the French had already started to build. They started to build, you know, two different forts and an outpost coming from Canada. Most of the French at the time, especially the soldiers and military, were coming from Canada. 
Did the French traders and the English traders get along? I mean, did they have much overlap or was there a kind of a line? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it came to that, um, I think with certain things, I think there were some, you know, interactions because there were numerous, uh, Washington even writes in his journal, I think in the fall of 1753 that, you know, coming across French traders that he saw at Logstown or, or eventually just maybe passed along the trail that were traveling the same way they were going to the south. Um, trend as far as the, you know, the building of the fort, most of the French at the time, especially when it came to there in the spring of 1754, um, the French, there were a lot more French traders, according to Trent and even Washington, that they were, they were actually at Logstown and sort of eventually, because the French coming down, especially from Canada, they had built the two outposts. They built one um, Fort Presque Isle, which right where Presque Isle State Park is today. They built another one there at Fort LaBeouf, right at, you know, LaBeouf Creek. Um, right in Waterford, Pennsylvania, and then eventually started building an outpost. They were able to take another trader that eventually would play a, a bigger role, especially with Trent's role at the Ohio here, basically named John Frazier, had a house built, and he was trading as early as 1741 at what, he, what would be the city of Franklin, Pennsylvania today, um, what they called Venango then, and Washington had stopped there. But when Washington had stopped there, Frazier had already been uh, vacated sort of that by the French. Actually, there was an account that, you know, Frazier was able to basically escape. He got warning from fellow traders that warned him the French were coming to evict him and were going to use force if necessary. And he was able to flee and eventually head south. Um, John Frazier ended up eventually building at the mouth of Turtle Creek, right outside of where Kennywood Park is today, and um, eventually would settle there, a place that Trent would stop on the way, actually. And as the French built one there, they called it just Venango and eventually would become Fort Michal in 1756. Um, but eventually their goals, of, hopefully, was to build not only an outpost at Logstown, because the traders were already familiar with that area. And there were some at the time, by the time March 1754 rolled around, Logstown was, had some military there, some French soldiers that were sort of stationed there, sort of keeping an eye on the Ohio country, not realizing because their goal was hopefully to build one there, which would be then eventually their fourth outpost and then a fifth one, hopefully at the mouth of Beaver Creek which was today what we know today is Rochester, Pennsylvania. Are there people who moved from Virginia to here to be farmers or, or just settlers? Yeah, I mean, the, at the time, in fact, they started early, especially with the promise of the Ohio Company saying that they wanted to settle and they were offering so many lands. They were, I mean, 10 years of not paying rent, basically, as they said, it was 10 years of rent-free land to these, to these families. And in fact, when, when Trent and his, had sent out some soldiers eventually here to to leave the area then of, at the time, which would be the inhabitants, um, as they passed, they sort of ran and ran past actually Gist and Washington coming back on their journey on January the 6th, because we, we know it because in George Washington's journal, he actually writes talking about seeing Trent's men heading hopefully to the Forks of the Ohio, as, as he assumed, he wasn't sure exact their exact plan, but seeing these men and then saying, a, you know, just behind them was a group of families coming out to settle um, hopefully on Ohio Company land. Now, Christopher Gist, who was traveling with George Washington, actually had a plantation already built, what he called, or what Washington referred to as Monongahela. Um, it was always known as Gist Settlement, and that was a place supposedly that they had, Ohio Company had set aside lands for families to start building on, and eventually they did. Those families that were supposedly following, uh, you know, Trent's men, you know, north there towards that area, which would have been right outside of Uniontown there. Um, 
basically wanted to settle there as well. And they eventually, as what it was found out, a lot of them, some of them had some kind of relation to, I believe one of them was actually even Christopher Gist's daughter and her husband were, were, were actually part of this group that was heading out to hopefully settle. Were there main trails or highways that everybody took to get from one place to another? I mean, the idea of George Washington just running into this group as he right. traveled through the wilderness seems Right. Odd. And as far as, you know, being closer to essentially, as, as he put it, as the inhabitants or the mouth of Wills Creek, um, the path. So there was only one path in, one path out. So at that point, that was it made sense that they would cross paths. Now, as they ventured north, you know, sort of crossing essentially present day Pennsylvania, um, as they got closer, what was known eventually would be known a year later as the Great Meadows, you know, or what was known then as the Great Meadows, um, that would have a you know more pivotal role with George Washington. Um, they it sort of it divided off. One went to what they called the mouth of what we called Redstone Creek, um, which is now present day Brownsville, Pennsylvania, and then the other one would go to the east a little bit up north, and it would actually follow it north as far as almost Shenopinstown. You could eventually almost go what they called the Sewickley Path. It would go the, almost the whole way to almost Pittsburgh. Not essentially straight, straight and narrow, but enough that it would go, it would get you there if you were trying to get there. Now, your book is called Captain Trent's Fort. So you referred to this Captain Trent a couple times, but who was he? William Trent was a, it was funny because he was a very prominent uh, Indian trader, especially early on. He, he grew up among, I mean, his whole family namesake was pretty much from the beginning. Trent's dad, Judge William Trent, or William Trent Sr., basically was the namesake for why they named Trenton, New Jersey. In fact, his house still ex resides today. William Trent's house that he built, it finally was finished there in summer of 1719, actually is still lies there today. And in fact, this year is the 300th anniversary of it. And eventually, Trent would grow up a little bit there, and then eventually his father would would move from Philadelphia there into this house. Um, they would finally move permanently there in the summer of 1721. And then, but unfortunately, you know, Trent's father, who was such a namesake of William Penn and, and such Samuel Carpenter, guys that had, you know, I, uh, Isaac Norris and James Logan, guys that were eventually prominent, especially with the city of Philadelphia, um, would die early in 1724. And, you know, Trent was without a father figure and eventually um, would seek the help of his cousin, Edward Shippen III, and who was not only the mayor of Philadelphia at the time, but one of the wealthiest families. They had supposedly the largest mansion um, on 2nd Street in Philadelphia, which was pretty good considering, you know, we see the city of Philadelphia today, and it took up supposedly almost two blocks, you know, with the gardens and everything. And that was the Shippen family that Shippensburg is named after? Correct, and, yeah. and Benedict Arnold's wife? Yes, eventually Edward Shippen III, his granddaughter was actually, yeah, was would be Peggy Shippen that we'd know, or Margaret Shippen we'd know today, yes. That name, you got a little bit more of a namesake later on in the Revolution, but yeah. He, um, yeah, Edward Shippen III, um, actual grandfather was Edward Shippen I, who in fact um, was sort of the namesake in Philadelphia, did not only trade with William Trent Sr., but also, like I said, William Penn. He's you know notorious for when we hear about the early 1700s, especially of Philadelphia. These names always come up. We, like I said, William Trent Sr., Edward Shippen the first, James Logan. All these guys were either mayors or some kind of prominent with the church and wealthy landowners. You know, Trent was fortunate enough then, after you know apprenticing under Edward Shippen the third, that you know learning the merchant trade, especially you know if he studied for about four years. And then eventually got shipped out because at this point, Edward Shippen was trying to get into the fur trade. That was starting to get bigger. 1740s, right around the peak of when, you know, Trent was finishing up his apprentice. So he got sent uh, eventually to the Frontier Depot then in, in Shippensburg, handling all the accounts. 
Um, Edward Chip in the third was well educated. Um, you know, like I said, he knew French, he knew Latin, um, and it's pretty obvious that he probably taught this to Trent as well, mainly because there's actually an account I was able to find researching through the Benjamin Franklin ledgers in Philadelphia that uh, uh, William Trent's mother, Mary, actually purchased a Latin book that was basically essentially for like a high schooler, you would say, called Clark's Introduction to Latin. And it was basically when you were sort of the tail end of your, in, your um, internship or apprenticeship and you were starting to get into the actual world and it was basically not only that you've, you're already learning to read possibly at this point and maybe writing and arithmetic, but adding even more so. Now you're versed not only in English, but also in Latin. And this was something that was picked up that it was only for that type of book was only for somebody of Trent's touch of age. She would have no use for it. So it was more of William Trent ended up doing that. And that was as early as 1738 and eventually would use it for his apprenticeship. You mentioned in your book that Trent earned a captain's commission when he commanded a company of 100 Pennsylvanians during King George's War from 1746 to 1747. What was King George's War? King George's War was sort of the precursor to the French and Indian. It was still a, a, a sort of not a talked about war. It didn't last very long. It was only about two or three years. And it ended up Starting about 1745, there was basically conflict between France and England. It was something sort of the precursor, um, sort of like the Revolutionary War between Britain eventually for the War of 1812. I mean, it ended up being that the King George's War was uh, a lot of eventually was more so New England than it was around this vicinity. Um, like I said, they wanted the king basically wanted to hopefully do an expedition to Canada was the initial thing. After numerous, there were skirmishes and battles, not only against the French, but also the Indians. Um, the, there were New Englanders that actually took the fortress of Lewisburg the whole way up in, in Nova Scotia there in 1745. Eventually, as this grew, it became over a, basically a race because of the trade. And what, what ended up happening was the conflict ended up being the king once and for all wanted to hopefully send an expedition to Canada, hopefully start, you know, getting rid of this. The French were devastating uh, eastern New York, Mohawk Valley, different stuff like that. So he wanted to form a company. So he sent, you know, the governors of different colonies. Governor George Thomas at the time, who um, was of Philadelphia um, at the time in 1746, and actually prominently actually resided in Trent's old house. And he actually was leasing that house out at the same time. So it's possible that could have been some kind of connection as well. But um, what ended up happening was is he wanted to you know, have captains and basically form four 100-man uh, companies, hopefully to send to an expedition in Canada. Trent was one of these uh, gentlemen that sort of volunteered himself and put his name out there. Probably didn't hurt that you know he was had studied under Edward Shippen and numerous other prominent names that I'm sure that they were well aware of. And by doing so, they were able to, you know, he was stationed in Philadelphia, recruited 100 men, and headed north actually being stationed or winter quarters then. Um, he was commissioned then in June of, of 1746, eventually ventured to Albany, New York, and was stationed there for a while. There's a couple receipts where an innkeeper actually pleaded to the Pennsylvania Assembly because along the way, Trent had supposedly, you know, starved him out with taking all the food and whatever was available supplies just for his men. And it was something that he wanted reimbursed for. But it was eventually something that um, it wasn't really meant to be because they didn't go really any further than than uh, pretty much just above Albany. I have to ask you, about, it's sort of a sidebar, but you have sure. a character in your book, uh, Thomas Cresap or Cressop? Cressop, yes. Uh, who was he? Thomas Cressop was a pretty... Uh, like I said, he was a big Marylander. He did a lot of stuff with uh, Lord Baltimore, who was eventually early 1730s. Cressop was, it's, it's, a, it's funny because his namesake especially, he was born in the 1690s. And eventually um, he lived, eventually would move from Skipton, England, 
and eventually would call his settlement in Maryland there was about it was about, believe it or not, it was about 15, 10 to 15 miles outside of where we know Cumberland, Maryland is today. It's, it, he eventually called it Shawnee Old Town. It's known as Old Town today. And it was actually a person that he ended up hiring George Washington to work with him to survey the land of the Ohio Company. And Thomas Cressop was involved because not only was he an Indian trader that worked for the Ohio Company, he also was a member, which was a, was a rare thing especially. So he had to have some kind of wealth, especially with land holding. And it was his former land that the Ohio Company would eventually build their big storehouse of what they called the new store. It was a two-story warehouse that housed not only traders, but also their skins and whatever else they were storing, supplies, cannon, you know, uh, muskets, ammunition, basically around Cumberland, Maryland there. And it was his land that he sold eventually to those building in the Ohio Company. And he would, you know, like later play a role. He would live to almost 1784. And his, um, I was able to fortunately find, it's not well marked, but I was able to find his actual grave and see where his house stood, once stood. And, and you know, numerous, Trent was able to stop there in 1754 to gather supplies and horses. Um, General Braddock, a year later in 1755, would stop with his massive army is there, you know, there as well. And it was a major stopping point, especially because he owned a lot of land and a lot of supplies that could have aided, especially along the way. Um, he was also the perpetrator of something called Cressop's War. Right. Yeah, that was a it was a basically a big land dispute. He worked sort of as an enforcer for Lord Baltimore, early 1730s. Um, at the time, Pennsylvania and Maryland were feuding over where the lines basically drawn. And there was this sort of uh, dictated border then, and Cressop's idea was to evict anybody that didn't have any, you know, ties, especially to Maryland. And there was a, an instant that I actually read that eventually um, from his homestead, he actually um, got to the point that any cattle that ventured over from Pennsylvania, he shot down immediately and even didn't even brand it his own, just killed it because he didn't want Pennsylvania cows and on his land. And it got to the point that they was, you know, causing an uprising because of this and numerous his dealings with Lord Baltimore and evicting people from the land that were, you know, either hadn't paid or weren't, you know, pledging allegiance to Maryland. Um, so with the border, he was actually they were they were sent. There was a group sent by the governor of Pennsylvania at the time to come and basically arrest him. And he ref he didn't want to go quietly and eventually and they ended up having almost lighting his house on fire to get him out of the out of the house. And eventually they would arrest him and they brought him through the streets of Philadelphia to sort of put him on display as an example. And apparently his first words spoken to the governor was Maryland looks beautiful instead of saying, you know, with Philadelphia. So it was he seemed quite a character and was eventually, you know, like I said he was a seemed from what I've read, a rugged individual, especially and had numerous dealings with with William Trenton. Hey, those least involved. Something like 96. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's remarkable, especially at that time. Mm. Well, we haven't really talked about the subject of your book, which is the fort that was built at the Forks of the Ohio. So whose idea was it to build the fort there? Well, initially, take credit for it, it was actually the, the Indians, the Six Nations. Um, Trent was basically, there's trying to smooth over, there were numerous treaties in the early 1750s that um, not only the Ohio Company, but also Virginia was trying to smooth things over to make sure there wasn't any sort of tension between, at the time, the Six Nations and um, the colony. And basically, at that time, uh, Governor Dinwiddie's idea was to hopefully, when he was basically became governor then in 1751, was to hopefully uh, give presents to the Indians. And so what he did is he sent Trent on one of such journey. And in July of 1753, he arrived at Logstown uh, numerous times that Trent was adventured there and basically set, 
sought the help of a guy named Tanner Rissen or the Half King. And they called him the Half King basically because he was the most vocal leader of the Six Nations. He wasn't, they didn't believe in kings and queens, but they basically, you know, so they called him the Half King. That was the English name for it. And Trent talked about that it was the Half King that told him that in order to, you know, seek the loyalty of not only the Six Nations, but any nearby tribes, um, the ideal place to build would be the Forks of the Ohio and invite them to also join you in building this. What was the purpose of the fort? Well, the main purpose of it was also a thing to protect the settlers, mind you, for the Ohio Company, the settling families that were supposedly coming in that they could hopefully get more land grants. Um, they were going to use this fort then to hopefully protect the settlers if they needed a place to go, especially being in the middle of the wilderness. And But by doing so, um, they also had to please the Indians, who sort of were questioning the motives on why in the first place they were wanted to build a fort. And you know, eventually Trent opened himself up and basically said that, you know, we're building this for, you know, the English. And, and he didn't really mention too much about the Ohio Company more so, but more so promising, you know, that, that the Half King would be involved in this. And it was him that actually waited when they were eventually waiting orders, per se, to finally build at the Forks of the Ohio. Um, Trent advanced as far as the mouth of Redstone Creek there, even before Dinwiddie gave him orders, just to sort of get a heads up, get a, ahead of things and start building possibly a, a storage house or, or so along the way. And at that point, the mouth of Redstone Creek, which lie right on the Monongahela River, was only about 37 miles from you know the Pittsburgh or the Forks of the Ohio. So at that time, they could take supplies from there and take it by canoe that way and also take the path, hopefully, then you know the other way, you know two different ways so they could go there. And with having there at the Forks then, you know, Trent waited. He, did, he actually waited at John Frazier's at the mouth of Turtle Creek, which is about eight miles away, and said his most important thing wasn't necessarily getting the orders from Dinwiddie, but also was waiting on the Half King's word of, we're waiting on you to join us at the Forks of the Ohio, which was a smart move because had he gone ahead and done that, it's hard to say what the Indians' um, opinion would have been had them not getting, you know, permission, as you would say, to, to start building. What was Tanner Rissen's interest in being nice to the English? Tanner Rissen sort of had a motivation. He had actually visited, after Trent had visited him in July of 1753, he got word that at this time, and it was mentioned even by Trent, that the French were coming from Canada. And it was supposedly there was more of a personal ambition. It was, it was supposedly talked about that possibly Half King's parents or even relatives of his had actually been killed by the French. Um, so it was sort of a and vendetta against that, and he realized that maybe he saw change was coming, and that he realized that whether we liked it or not, the English were here. And it was one of those things where he felt more comfortable with the English, and he feels like they were, at the time, you know, doing so as far as, you know, getting ahead of the times and basically joining Trent up, hopefully, to help build this outpost. Who was it who, just, who said, okay, build here? Well, they had scouted, Trent had actually gone in August of 1753 and had scouted the, um, the Forks of the Ohio to see, you know, if this was the prime thing for a fort. And believe it or not, about not even a month before that, the Ohio Company had suggested um, possibly going further down the river, um, what they called it the, at the mouth of Chartier's Creek. It was um, right at McKee's Rocks there. There was like an Indian mound that they thought about building on. Um, they had labeled it on one of the maps. Uh, George Mercer, who was also a surveyor for the Ohio Company, had actually named it Fort Hill, and it was suggested the first suggested place that they wanted to hopefully build a fort. And after looking at it and the terrain and how hard it was to get down the Ohio to that spot, and even I mean even today it's even rough as far as navigable as far as by canoe to that area, it was suggested then, especially by 
Half King when he told him in July, later in July, that the Forks of the Ohio might be better. And then eventually when Trent viewed it then in August, he you know viewed the Forks and actually wrote to John Fraser at Turtle Creek and eventually to Governor Dinwiddie that this is where we should build. And in order to solidify this, this is when you know, Dinwiddie decided, well, we need somebody to scout ahead and hopefully warn, now that we've heard the French are coming to the South, to warn them. And that's when George Washington became involved in October, the end of October there, left to go north with Christopher Gist to hopefully you know, warn the French. And at the time, he also viewed the Forks of the Ohio that Trent had seen about three months earlier. And in fact, doing, that, doing so also marveled at this would be, a, you know, as he put it, a suitable, most suitable place for a fort. You say in your book that uh, Governor Dinwiddie chose George Washington for this expedition up to the French because he was expendable. Right. He basically, it was funny because it was offered and it was considered, but nobody really volunteered for it. And it was, Washington sort of put his name out there because it was his, you know, lifelong goal to hopefully, at least as a child, to hopefully join, you know, get a king's commission. Um, he eventually, when he was younger, his older half-brother Lawrence, who was also, a, like I said, was the founder of the Ohio Company, Lawrence was in the Royal Navy and had, hearing the stories of, of Lawrence and as he wrote in his thing, he wanted to hopefully join um, do this follow sort of in his older half-brother's footsteps and his mother sort of forbid him it was he was about 14 at the time and basically told him that he wasn't leaving and he'd have to stay here and at least could learn as a surveyor and that's sort of what kept him here and you know maybe thankfully in the future it was probably good he didn't join the you know the, the royal navy or go off into british commission because it might have been differently especially in the Re revolutionary war so if uh, Trent wanted to build this fort, how did he rustle up a crew who was willing to go off and do that job? Well, there was a, it was funny because it was a, a catch to it. Eventually, of course, at least what it would come by later, Trent basically, and comparing to him and George Washington, were hired then to hopefully form companies of 100 from what they called the, the counties of Virginia, Augusta, and also Frederick County. Frederick County at the time was as far east as Winchester, Virginia, and went to almost above Cumberland, Maryland, um, where the Ohio Company actually had a store, was across the river in what we know today as Ridgely, West Virginia. Um, that was still considered Frederick County, Virginia, even though it was, you know, it was just the Potomac separating it. And at this time, Trent basically put out, when he was eventually commissioned, he put out volunteers to hopefully build this storehouse with the Ohio Company. And at the time, he said the government, uh, as far as the martial law was, that if you were a volunteer, not necessarily militia, if you were a volunteer, they were supposed to be paid two shillings a day um, for their work and labor, uh, you know, not necessarily as soldiers, but also as, you know, helping, you know, further the road and possibly then, like I said, build a storehouse and, and everything. Now, compare that to Washington, who was in Alexandria at the time, basically trying to recruit his company, and he's looking for soldiers. Soldiers were only paid eight pence per day, and eight pence was three times less than what Trent was offering. And at two shillings a day, it was almost a, an offer that a lot of traders especially wouldn't pass up as an extra, you know, especially knowing the fact that they were venturing into the Ohio Company eventually that they could possibly build supply houses, and some already did already, or some might have houses supposedly that they could build within this fort and trade with the Indians and have successful wealth hopefully down the road. Now, how big did they imagine the fort being, and, and how did they get all the, the supplies original, up there? It was, the original sort of blueprint, per se, they, they started in July, and it was he wanted it about 90 feet sort of across, and they had it said it would have had sort of a 90 feet square, and then there were what they called four bastions that were like triangles in the, each corner. 
And they had a sort of a blueprint on what they wanted the walls to be 12 feet high. And it was sort of wishful thinking, especially considering they had, you know, 70 or so guys of William Trent and then hopefully the 100 they were supposedly going to get with Washington. Washington was struggling. At one point he wrote he had 25 men, and some of them, as he put, were without, you know, hats or coats. And he said they were more destitute than anything is what he wrote. And it was hard that they weren't getting the recruits, and especially with when Washington reported earlier about how many French were up there at the French outposts. They needed more men. And at this point, with that fort, would have been great in large size and would have been a great idea. They needed more men, especially to help, you know, Trent's men, you know, with the labor and everything. So Trent's men were building the fort, but Washington was looking for soldiers. Yes, he was having problems recruiting. and was His goal was eventually with his orders were to join Trent's men, help with the labor, possibly even protect the laborers, depending on who they hired out. And the problem is, is uh, Washington was much delayed because he couldn't even get the numerous amount of men. And like I said, he, he had about maybe 25, 30 men at one point, um, even as, uh, as late as March of 1754, um, when they're trying to hopefully push these guys further. You know, Trent's guys have been there almost a month now, and they, you know, building and what they, at least what it was put out is, Trent actually was able to stake out the fort, actually mark it out, and was actually um, did two different buildings at the time. Uh, I was able to find an account um, that until recently hadn't been actually known that normally it was known as basically a storehouse and it was surrounded by palisades of like upright sticks that were basically around. There wasn't much to the fort. It was basically what they called an embryo of a fort. A lot of historians write. And in this account written in Trent's handwriting basically talked about how not only did they build a fort, uh, the, like they marked out the fort, but they also had um, – a building already built, like a magazine or possibly for a storage house. And they had built another building was actually in the works and was starting to build about halfway. And it was actually confirmed because um, in the French side of it, as they went to spy in March 6th of 1754 and sort of spied across the river, they were able to make out not only the they couldn't see how big the fort was, but they knew the English at least were marking out the fort. And they were also they could see at least it was what, as they put, an advanced building that was already made and possibly another one also in the works. Now, you referred earlier to George Washington's trip where he went up and, and warned the French. To, but was this hap did this happen, the fort happen after his first trip up there? Or when, when was the sequence there? Yes. The, uh, George Washington was actually left on October the 31st, 1753. And goal was to he had to pick up uh, not only an interpreter for the Indians but also interpreter for hopefully the French when he arrived and would meet them and also maybe just somebody to guide him up there and at that time like I said in October they were he left October the 31st eventually would arrive at uh, the inhabitants or Cumberland Maryland there November 14th to pick up Christopher Guest who was residing there and eventually with the, you know, he had servitors or servants that would hunt and also cook meals and stuff for him on the way up. Mostly were Indian traders. Um, they headed north and then eventually to Logstown where they would stop and get the, hopefully the help of the half king who did in fact join them with two other Indians. Eventually they would head north. And at this point, uh, you know, as far as with um, George Washington and that, yeah, Trent was, there was plans hopefully to build an outpost. Like I said, back in the summer there of July and August, they were already viewing the ground, but nothing had actually been done except maybe on paper. Um, but as Washington was heading up, and as, you know, like I said before, it was more of he was virtually an unknown at the time. So 
if in fact, I mean, maybe Dinwiddie's wishes were if something, you know, if the French did decide to, you know, do something, say they in fact tried to kill Washington, you know, this would be more so reason to, oh, we need to build an outpost and get more support overseas, especially. Um, and at that time, you know, by the time Washington would arrive, you know, and sort of head back, he was, his goal was to head, hopefully head back after visiting the French and head back to Williamsburg, um, where the governor resided. And basically at that time is when he passed Trent's guys who, Trent, I think, took upon his own knowing that, you know, everybody seemed to believe, at least the governor also believed, too, that, you know, no matter what the, the, the message was, which the message to the French commander basically in unknown certain terms was, um, we need you to leave. This land belongs to England. You're trespassing, you know, which, of course, the governor pretty much knew that the French probably weren't going to leave. They've already built two forts at this point in an outpost. They probably weren't going to just pack up and leave because Washington delivered a message. So at this point, he pretty much figured, you know, it was easier if they, you know, put out the word. And basically, and I think this sort of motivated Trent to a point that, you know, like what happened when he joined the expedition there in 46, um, you know, this could be his name, you know, his namesake to come out here, make a thing for himself if he made a move. And he sort of did because no official orders were actually given even to Trent yet. By the time he had left and I was able to find the account when he left himself, he left January the 21st, 1754 to head to join the men that he'd already sent ahead that had passed Washington at Redstone. And when he arrived there on January 30th, um, Dinwiddie had just put out the commission. His official commission was dated January 26th. So Trent had no idea what the orders were or even, in fact, the commission. So it was sort of a sort of a move, a bold move by Trent to sort of get ahead of the game. Now, whether or not he would have pushed to the forks, it's hard to say. There's really no evidence of that. But eventually that was the, you know, the prime motivation, especially for the Ohio Company, if that's what they wanted to take. So George Washington was raising a, a, a unit of soldiers in order to go and protect the fort that was being built, right. but the fort was, was this a military thing or a, a, a business thing? Well, this is Dinwiddie where the- was an investor in the Ohio company, right? right. Little and conflict it, and it was sort of a, yeah, and it was, and it was sort of a, um, and it was sort of a controversy because it came down to it, you know, numerous conflicts, especially after when eventually um, Trent's men, Trent would eventually leave on March 17th, 1754 to hopefully get more supplies with no word from Washington. He was he kept writing as he kept as he kept saying in his notes and stuff that he would write speedily, hopefully trying to reinforce Washington, that who he thought was hopefully in Cumberland, Maryland at the time and to hurry up and join him so they could have at least force because they keep hearing rumors from the north that the French are coming you know, to the south with a large force. It's only a matter of time, especially with the spring hits and the, the rivers thaw and the creeks thaw that these French would be coming down. So in order to hurry it up, he left on March 17th, hopefully to get more supplies, possibly even to recruit more men, as he put, and hopefully hurry up Washington, that Washington, he could send him back off. Unfortunately, when he arrived back and what he said, it took him 10 days because at this point he had to go through Chestnut Ridge and, and mountains just over to get to Cumberland, Maryland. Um, he said the snow was still in the mountains and it took him about 10 days. When he arrived on March 27th, Washington was nowhere in sight, and, and he actually wrote to Washington hoping he was there in the vicinity. Washington was still two to three days out with, the, with whatever men he had, and eventually it left quite a predicament because, as Trent would put later, eventually when Trent's men would be stuck there and the French would come down, um, they were left with only a few and far between men that were there. Uh, Ward basically listed it as being there were about 33 effective men, maybe 33 guys with guns, and the rest maybe might have been just traders and such that might have been just laborers that only had shovels. Um, he didn't count them as he said there were 41 total men when they eventually, as you could say, surrendered to the French. Um, so 
when this controversy came about of when Trent was sort of, oh, you abandoned your men and did all this, and he was trying to say that, well, you know, unfortunately, we, you know, this this area, especially the Forks, we were trying to get more men, but Washington didn't join us. We needed, we only had so many. I had 70 men when we first started, but then when the, had all these Indians as well, but as soon as the presents ran out that he gave to everybody, that you know, the Indians sort of left and said, we took the, the bribes and, you know, and the men sort of came and go. He didn't really keep them on a sort of a, a leash per se, and a lot of them stayed. And like I said, by the time Ward was had to, you know, had to do this, had to surrender to the French, they were down to 41. And the fact of the matter is the controversy was as well, you know, what happened there. And Trent's base, basic uh, is what he basically pleads. There was at least two or three accounts that he said he never had orders for the Virginia government. It was only the Ohio company. That this was Ohio Company Fort Soli, and that had nothing to do with because he got the orders. He said if if we had, in fact, been a government, you know, of Virginia forts or you know from the governor there, he would have sent us money to fund this. Um, Trent's guys himself, Trent had to pay himself through the Ohio Company funds um, in order to to sort of you know fund this expedition mainly because Trent at the time even before the you know he got commissioned was the what they called the factor of the Ohio Company handed all the finances kept all the books, he wrote all this, and this is what came a controversy later on, especially when um, they asked him about, you know, where should the, you know, should he be reimbursed, should he not be reimbursed, and eventually it led to a, uh, a court trial between not only William Trent, but also with the governor for, of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie. So you said there were 30 or 40 soldiers at the fort. How far along in construction was it? Well, it was, like I said, they arrived there about February 17th, 754, Trent remarked that they immediately started not only marking out the fort, he walked with the Indians, which was a, you know, sort of the mark out the corners, probably lay the square, per se, is what they had, you know, originally probably used the original blueprint because only a month had transacted since then, you know, since they sort of changed their location. So it's probable that they probably used the same blueprint, saying that they were pretty much agreeable on this. And it was right at where Point State Park is right, right now? Right, right. We're in the vicinity of where uh, Fort Duquesne and, the, you know, the fountain is today. And it was something where he probably, he marked out the forts, probably laid the square, and then eventually would lay out the, the first building. And wisely, he chose the Half King to lay the first log, um, sort of to give him a, you know, and Half King would write numerous times or refer to it. And even when the French um, were able to sort of take over that area, uh, the Half King sort of had a, a controversial scuffle the next morning after they surrendered the fort, stating that this wasn't a, you know, an English fort, this was an Indian fort because I laid the first log, you know, something like that. That And it also was brought up in the account, which is what helped me in my research, was that there was more than one building because Trent actually for the first time had referred to in this account that I was able to find that the half king laid one of the a log for one of the storehouses and not just the storehouse, meaning that there was more than one building when they laid everything out. And then, like I said, eventually they got to about March 7th is when there was numerous French accounts saying that they could see an advanced building, the markup of the fort. Um, but as the as he would leave about 10 days later, um, they were able to at least put a line of defense and what they called it they laid or what Trent would only put in his account, this later account I found, uh, putting what he he said, laying logs all around almost horizontally, like a horizontal wall, as a line of defense. Now, he claims he only did it with the Indians and told them 
instructed them before he left on how to do it. He didn't want to tell the men because he didn't want to put them in a, a spot where they would think that there was no hope that French were coming, we probably would have to fight, you know, stuff like that. So by telling just the Indians, he basically, and possibly his, you know, his ensign, Edward Ward, they were able to at least put a line of defense and then eventually with word coming that the French were coming after, you know, after Trent had left, they did eventually put up upright logs called palisades eventually around the, you know, the whole structure itself. How would they have gotten the word that the French were coming? I mean, who knew? There were traders supposedly from Logstown, um, the, the, probably the most recent report. Now, they were, like I said, there were rumors they were getting from, and they weren't sure how viable they were, but Trent was taking any type of letter that was coming in. Even when they arrived from February 17th on, as viable sources that the French were coming any time. Now, he knew probably they probably weren't coming until, like I said, there weren't, you know, floating chunks of ice in the, in the water that would be easier to travel because he knew the French would come down from the north. So they came by water? Yeah, mostly by water. It would, they came by what, as Ward would describe in his account, the day of when the French arrived there at the Forks. Um, it was mainly, you know, bateaus, you know, wider canoes and different types of stuff that they would, you know, come down. There was close to, from what Ward described, which possibly could have been more exaggerated just because Ward was was younger and probably less experienced. And by seeing this vast amount of canoes and bateaus coming down, he might have exaggerated the number because he was just so shocked at seeing them, you know, arriving that day. But they were able to, one of the traders um, that actually traveled with Washington, John Davidson, who was the Indian interpreter, was stationed at Logstown and had gotten the word that supposedly the probably from the neighboring uh, French traders that were residing there, that they would be about four days. And they were right, because about four days later, from when he got that note saying that the French were coming, um, uh, Ward you know, prepared, and that next day, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the French did arrive on the 17th. How many French? It's, that's another dispute, because it basically has been uh, a lot of... Ward, had in his first account in May of 1754, before the governor had said there was around possibly 500, and then he gave a later account in June that was like a thousand, so he doubled that number. Trent himself, from what he had heard from the sources, possibly from the men that were there, had wrote about 500. So, news, needless to say, it was they were still outnumbered, almost 10 to one, uh, being there, you know, seeing this massive force come down the river. Was there any fighting? No, there was a threat to. I mean, as far as this thing happened, they said the French landed. They got out, unloaded their artillery, probably obviously just to show, you know, sort of flex their muscles a bit, saying, you know, and it was that was also a dispute. Ward had said at one point there was 18 pieces of artillery. There was another story he, account he wrote. He said nine. So he doubled that even with the men. But regardless of the fact, there were artillery and the French had warned him that he had one hour to hopefully resolve of you either vacate this area or we'll use our artillery on this little makeshift fort, so to, so to speak. I think I read in your book that after uh, Ward was the guy who actually did the surrender, that yes. once he surrendered, the French invited him to dinner? Right. They, they um, in fact, that night, as the, they allowed the English or what was left of Trent's men with the Six Nations sort of stay, as, as Ward put it, about 300 yards from where the French was encamped, um, sort of away from the actual French encampment, enough that they could see the fires and probably the tents and stuff that they put up. And then that night, uh, Captain uh, Contracor actually invited, the commander actually invited Ward to dine with them, but he was more so of uh, trying to find information. He was trying to, oh, well, how many men do you have, you know, or what do you know about the orders? And, and honestly, Ward was sort of left in the dark. He knew, he knew some, but he didn't, and even if he did, he probably wasn't going to say anything to this commander. And in fact, the French commander, Contracor, actually offered money for his carpentry tools because um, it was admired in a couple later's letter, um, letters later that eventually 
um, they admired the handiwork of, of Trent's men that it's possible that they left some of those um, buildings actually up, or at least the ones that they were constructing, you know, as part of Fort Duquesne that they would build. It says in your bio in this book that you are a French and Indian War interpreter? Yes. What's your interest in the French and Indian War? Well, I, I credit my parents for this because when I was growing up, I was about 10 years old. We, my father was a big history buff, Civil War, French and Indian, any type of, you know, historical type of era. And they had always been, you know, had seen historical reenactors, people that, had, you know, dressed up living history. And it came across a group, an 18th century group at one of the local event, uh, local historical events and had, you know, inquired on how do you join something like this? And, you know, like I said, I was uh, 10 years old at the time. And um, eventually my mother was was a seamstress and was able to sew a lot of the clothes and, you know, did research. And then as we were growing up, that's pretty much, you know, from May to October, that was not necessarily every weekend, but, you know, when weekends, when we could, there were numerous historic sites that we, my brother and I both grew up on this. And to a point, the more we did it, the more interested we became. And, and like I said, now it's almost, it'll be almost 30 years that we've uh, done this. It'll be about 30 years next year. And um, so now we actually, in our, our group is Captain William Trent's company, which is what sort of got me, you know, sparked this interest in the beginning, I guess you could say. Is this your first book? Um, I've written like fiction. I've done a lot of historical fiction, 18th century. Um, I, this is the first nonfiction and it was, I was just proud of doing it just because the fact of my big thing, especially with William Trent and, you know, as we talk to people at these events and try to educate them on what happened at this day that it, you know, like we talked about earlier, it was such an event that sort of overlooked it could have, you know, had there been a battle or had there been something, you know, this might have, you know, changed the tide, especially of what happened with the French Indian War. But nonetheless, this event in itself was sort of, as you could say, the sort of the sparks to the French and Indian. It's sort of as eventually with would involve George Washington here a year later when he, as, as they were, as Horace Walpole would say, set the world on fire. This was Trent's uh, company building at the Forks and the, you know, basically the conflict meeting the French was sort of the sparks that started this. So Washington, did he eventually get his troop together and head for for The farthest he made, he eventually, Trent was eventually realizing that Washington wasn't in the vicinity or at least was a couple days away, said he was going to grab more supplies and hopefully go back to his men at the Forks of the Ohio. Now, at the time, like I said, the inhabitants was probably a good, you know, it, they were saying it's about 130 miles um, through the paths eventually through. And now we're talking March and now on some ends at the forks, they did write the weather was hotter, but through the mountains, it was, you know, it's like today's weather where it's hard to say which day is going to bring the, the mountains uh, then were, like I said, was still full of snow and trying to get the, you know, the horses back through there. But by the time he was able to gather horses and supplies and head back, Washington did eventually arrive. And instead of letting Trent go back, um, to, you know, eventually there, he held a council of war on April the 23rd, 1754. Now this is um, six days after Ward had already surrendered the Forks. It was Washington sort of arrived back at the, at the, at the Forks? At the inhabitants at, in Wills Creek. It was all the furthest north he was, Cumberland, Maryland. Okay. And at that point, um, you know, they, it was basically what's the next step? And it, at the time, as they were meeting and doing this council of war, um, Ward would arrive ahead of his men, ahead of the Trent's men, saying that obviously what happened at the Forks and that the French have it now. So it sort of changed the game plan. How often do you go to Point State Park now, where the fountain is, where the three I try to get together? there. It's like I said, I try to get there pretty good when it's when the weather sort of breaks. Um, 
I did a lot more so when I was sort of taking the pictures for the book and sort of picturing on, you know, where they landed or where Trent was supposedly building and, and just getting the, you know, the overall sense of looking at, you know, the command of, as Washington put it, the, you know, the command of both rivers and looking up and then seeing, you know, I think especially was looking up that Allegheny and picturing that, you know, that French fleet sort of of bateaux and canoes coming down, you know, as they were arriving there at the point. Uh, if someone is watching this and they are curious about the French and Indian War, what are some of the places they should go in Pennsylvania? Well, essentially, I mean, you know, Fort Pitt Museum is is probably the first start, basically because, you know, that's sort of what started. And that was actually the first event I ever did reenacting. And it was sort of what got me interested on who actually William Trent was, just because his name came up numerous times, not only for building of this fort that I wrote about, but uh, later on when the, the English would build their fort, Fort Pitt. Um, and that's essentially a great one. Fort Ligonier um, in Ligonier, Pennsylvania, has a great museum, um, great collections, you know, probably one of the finest in the area, if not the, you know, United States for, you know, French Indian War, you know, as far as collections. Um, we do events at Fort Niagara. It's a, it's a right outside of it's actually north of the falls, but not in Canada, but it's right on Lake Ontario and the Niagara River there. And it's also a, a magnificent fort to, to visit that's, that we also do an event at. And, and like I said, a lot of these places um, you know, within our backyard, like I said, Fort Pitts, Fort Ligonier, and um, these are places that eventually people could visit to learn. I think, like I said, Fort Pitt has a great thing of knowing the history of what happened at the fort, not only from with Trent's side, but also the whole way almost to turn of the century there to the end of the revolution. You say right here at the, uh, toward the end of the book, you say, when Trent returned to America on June 5th, 1775, his world was at war and everything was confusing. Fort Pitt was now called Fort Dunmore. Yeah. They changed the name from Fort Pitt to Fort. It Dunmore. was a sort of a rebellion against the English name, with the with the crown being with the conflict with the crown. They decided, hopefully, then to well, we're going to rename because Fort Pitt was named by the British, and basically the you know the John Forbes that was able to actually that named this fort. Um, they decided that you know we didn't want to name something that was already named in honor of you know William Pitt that was the at the time the head of Parliament. So it was, we're going to change this to Fort Dunmore, who is basically more, we have more loyalty to Lord Dunmore than we would to, you know, to, to William Pitt, who everybody was pledging their loyalties at this point, especially with the conflict breaking out up in the north there in, in uh, Lexington Concord and such. You said this is your first nonfiction book. Do you have another nonfiction book in mind? Yeah, by my next project that it's sort of a, what started gotten with this one is the, hopefully the complete biography on William Trent. Um, I know Sewell Slick wrote a fantastic book in the 1940s, 1947, called William Trent in the West. And it was a full biography, and it was a dissertation that he had done, um, in fact, for graduate work. And he'd followed up with a biography, and it was hard because he didn't cite anything. It was more of, and I've read it in the past, and it's some of the stuff, and it's hard because, you know, back at the turn of the century or even in the 40s and the 50s, you know, today you can, you know, you can access without even going to these places, have digital collections and different things. It's just possible you could do research without doing that. And with, with Sewell Slick, he had what he could do. And if he couldn't get to that place, it probably wasn't getting in the book, unfortunately. So it was one of those, my hopefully goal is to eventually write the complete. And I've been compiling letters and numerous stops throughout, um, you know, making trips, however, and keeping the pictures, you know, not only from this book, but also for other ones that I'm eventually going to use for the whole life of Trent. We've been speaking with Jason Cherry. He is the author of this book, Pittsburgh's Lost Outpost, Captain Trent's Fort. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. 
Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.